Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, 1 Peter 3 is a passage here that um, actually in God's providence addresses primarily women. 1 Peter 3. Uh, we're going through the book of 1 Peter, one passage at a time, and now we arrive here at chapter 3 and we get to a passage that uh, by many is regarded to be uh, old-fashioned, out of touch, primitive, sexist, uh, perhaps downright offensive. There's uh, one commentator who, in writing about this passage, says that this passage shows that Peter is not without a sense of humor. His way of explaining this passage is to say basically that Peter is joking. Uh, One of the good reasons for going through a book of the Bible is that we are put in a position where we have to approach and hear from certain texts that we might not otherwise want to deal with, uh, but we have a strong conviction here that all of the Bible is God's Word, not just the parts we like, not just the parts that seem to go along with cultural sensibilities, uh, but even passages like this in 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 through 7. The topic of this passage is marriage, and many of you probably know that marriage, at least traditional marriage, seems to be taking some hits in our culture and in our nation in particular with the legalization of same-sex marriage, the increase in the number of people cohabitating before marriage or not marrying at all. There's an increase in the number of people who are not married at all, particularly among young people uh, in their 20s. Um, Back in 2010, Time Magazine uh, issued this uh, question, Who Needs Marriage?, And the whole article is about the decline of traditional marriage in our culture. In the article, the author writes that marriage seems to be not as necessary as it used to be. Marriage is just going out of style, it seems. Uh, But nonetheless, we have the scriptures that speak very directly to how marriages should operate. Now, I understand that not everybody in this room is married. Uh, In fact, quite a few of you are not, as we have quite a few college students. I suspect many of you, however, will be married one day. And even if that doesn't happen and you're not married, it is still the responsibility of us as Christians to be able to offer up a defense for the biblical view of marriage. And so hopefully you'll find this helpful um, as we talk through this. Now, the issue that makes this difficult for a lot of people, and particularly we'll see that in this passage, is this word be subject to, or this word submit. That, that's the stumbling block, and that's what Peter addresses here. And just so you know, that seems to be a repeated theme in this letter that Peter has written. If you'll review with me, uh, hopefully you have your Bibles. Um, We're going to be looking at this in some detail, but if you go back to verse 13, for instance, in chapter 2, notice what Peter says, be subject to every human institution, be submissive to every human institution. In verse 18, he says to servants, be subject to your masters, be submissive to your masters. And now at the start of chapter 3 in verse 1, there's an instruction to wives 
to similarly be subject, likewise be subject to your own husbands. Um, So you're seeing this theme kind of being repeated by Peter, and this is all in the context of verse 12 in chapter 2. So take a look at that. Peter commands his readers to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he enters into these commands. And so it seems like what Peter is doing here is not trying to hold women down. He's not seeking to be sexist or oppressive. What he seems to be saying here is that in a world that doesn't understand the gospel and is hostile to the gospel and is contrary to the gospel, that one of the ways we can win the world, one of the ways we can make an impression on them is by adopting an attitude of submission in various walks of our lives, and that includes even marriage. So we have here in 1 Peter 3, God's design for marriage. Um, There are exhortations here to husbands in verse 7. Sorry, ladies, there's six verses to wives and one verse to husbands. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but that's the way Peter has written it, and that's what we have to deal with. So here we're going to read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. And I think what basically is happening here is that Peter is presenting a view of marriage that in God's eyes and even in the world's eyes should be perceived as beautiful. What Peter's writing here is something that's beautiful, so beautiful that it ought to get the attention of the people around us who are watching and viewing us uh, in our marriages, for those of us who are married. So 1 Peter 3, starting with verse 1. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Our God, we pray, we pray and plead, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand what this means, what we've just read. We believe this is your word. We believe this is your voice speaking. We want to know how to understand it properly and apply it properly in this world, in this time. So help us to do that together as your word goes forth in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, the outline here this morning is very simple, just two things. We're going to look at directions given to wives and directions given to husbands uh, as a way of understanding God's 
design for marriage. So first of all, directions here given to wives. First question, what are these directions? And we see, as I've already mentioned here at the beginning of verse 1, there's a command to wives to be subject to your own husbands. Uh, What that means is that wives are called to willingly submit to their husband's authority. To willingly submit under the authority that God has given to husbands in marriages. Now, immediately, I know there's questions about that. Doesn't this mean that a wife or a woman is therefore inferior to a husband or a man? Doesn't this sound sexist, like it's exalting the quality of men above women? Um, I think the answer to that is no. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that women are inferior to men. And there's a number of different reasons why, even in this text, um, just looking at verse 1 and noticing that Peter is speaking to wives. Uh, Now, I know that's not such a big deal to us in this culture, but that would have been very unusual in first century Greco-Roman culture. The Greek philosophers would not have addressed women directly, nor would they have addressed servants or slaves directly, like Peter did in chapter 2, verse 18. So there's a sense in which Peter is dignifying women by even including in his letter a direct address to them. But notice something else here in verse 1. There seems to be a situation here where there is a believing wife, a Christian wife, who has a husband who is not a Christian. Uh, He says, so that even if some do not obey the word, even if some of your husbands do not obey the word, that also would have been a very unusual thing in this particular culture. Because it was expected that a wife would believe whatever her husband believed. Women, wives generally wouldn't be able to have their own ideas about things. But here Peter is acknowledging that we have a woman, a wife who's a Christian, a husband who's not a Christian. And Peter is affirming that wife in that situation. Commending her, affirming her in her ability to think for herself and come up with her own decision about what she wants to believe as a Christian. So, there's an emphasis here on equality in that regard. Um, And we see at the end of verse 7, notice this wonderful expression of equality, where Peter says, since they, women, wives, are heirs with you, husbands, of the grace of life, that wives are just as much recipients of grace through the gospel as a husband would be. Now, to us, that sounds obvious. To Peter's readers, that would not have been so obvious. And so Peter is going a long way here to elevating the status of women in society uh, and before God. And lastly, as we just back up and look at the whole biblical picture, we know that there is this wonderful teaching of all of God's, or um, all individuals, all people in the world being created in God's image. And that includes women, male and female. God created them, both in the image of God. There is no male, no female. All are one in Christ Jesus, as we see in Galatians chapter 3. So Wayne Grudem sums this up very nicely, this idea of men and women created 
in the image of God. Wayne says, wherever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as selfish dictators, wherever wives are forbidden to have their own jobs outside the home or to vote or to own property or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is abuse or violence against women or rape or female infanticide or polygamy or harems, the biblical truth of equality in the image of God is being denied. That's a foundational biblical truth that Peter would affirm. So, does this command to wives to be subject, to be submissive, does this mean that they're inferior? No. The Bible does not allow that conclusion. But we still have this command. What, what does this mean then? What, what, what is Peter saying? Be subject, be submissive. Well, there, there's a number of different ways that people have kind of sought to get around what seems to be the clear meaning of this passage. And Uh, one of the suggestions is that what Peter and the Bible are actually teaching is something called merely mutual submission. That there isn't any specific command to wives to submit to their husbands. There's no unique leadership role given to the husband. It's just that men and women are to submit to one another as all members of God's household are called to submit to one another. And This argument would have some basis in Ephesians 5.21, which gives that exact command, submit to one another. So the Bible does say that, that's true. Uh, But a little bit after that, Paul goes on to call wives to submit to their husbands. I think it's the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 22. So we have a command to wives to submit to husbands, and then we have this affirmation of mutual submission. Those are both there in Ephesians 5. But I would say that mutual submission does not um, mean that a man, that a husband, does not have a unique leadership role in the marriage. There's a number of reasons for that. One, we note that husbands in the Bible are never called to submit to wives, and yet we have wives commanded in at least four different places in the New Testament to submit to their husbands. And probably most profoundly and most importantly, if you look at that Ephesians 5 passage, when Paul commands wives to submit to husbands, he goes on to give the example or the pattern by which wives are to do that. And what he says is that wives are to submit to husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ. Now, certainly when we think of the relationship between Christ and the church, we wouldn't say that there's some kind of mutual submission going on there. Christ is never called to submit to the church. It's only the church that's called to submit to Christ. And so that pattern is given in Ephesians 5 as an ongoing pattern for the way wives are to submit to their husbands. So we see there also that this can't be just merely a cultural thing because the church is called on an ongoing basis to adopt a position of submission to Christ. And that's the pattern for wives submitting to their husbands. So 
Do we explain this by saying it's just mutual submission? I would say only insofar as we allow the husband to continue to retain his unique role as leader in the marriage. This is not a denial of the equality that a wife or a woman has with a man in dignity, in honor, in status before God. But according to the scriptures, there are different roles. There are different functions that men and women play and are assigned in God's design for marriage. Men and women are different. As much as our culture wants to say they're exactly the same, they're different. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Is that what the book is called? And it acknowledges there are very distinct differences between the genders, and the genders have specific roles as well. And what Peter is saying here, wives, be subject to your husband. So that's, that's what the direction is. But now, let's ask another question. Why? Why would Peter give this direction to wives? And I think the reason, as we see in this text, is that there is something profoundly appealing about a wife who is submissive to her husband. There's something beautiful about that. That's, that's what Peter is going to make a case for here. That this is something so attractive that even unbelievers might notice it. But more specific to this passage, it's something that their own husbands will notice, even if the husbands are not believers. So let's look back to the text here. Verse 1, again, if these husbands who don't even, who um, uh, do not obey the word, it, it says. That, that's a little stronger term than just saying they're unbelievers. It's stronger than just saying they're not Christians. It's saying these are husbands who are proactively set against the Word of God. They are in active disobedience. So that's the kind of husband that the particular wife um, is married to. And what Peter says here is that it's possible for those husbands to be one. See that in verse 2? When they see your respectful conduct, they would be one. They'd be one to Christ. They'd be one to God through faith in Jesus when they see your conduct. Look down to verse 4. What does this conduct look like? Um, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I'm sorry, I was looking for verse 2. A respectful and pure conduct that a husband would see in a wife. And then in verse 4, going on, talking about the hidden person of the heart, that there's something deep down internal in the heart of a woman, that when that woman is drawn close in relationship with God, there's something appealing, there's something beautiful about that. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a uh, British preacher from the 20th century. I quote him from time to time. Uh, read a biography about him, and one of the things that stuck out to me most about that biography was a letter that was written to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and the person writing the letter was commenting on the power that he beheld in the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and the letter writer said that this can only be attributed to the fact that you, Martin Lloyd-Jones, have been building a secret history with God. That over the years, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones had been on his knees in prayer. He had been in the scriptures. He had been meditating on what God had to say to him. He had been walking closely with God behind closed doors where nobody could see, building a secret history with his God. And that resulted in the power of his ministry. That seems to be what's in mind here when Peter talks about the wife building the hidden person of the heart. That's this imperishable beauty that can be developed and cultivated in the life of a wife. This gentle and quiet spirit that Peter mentions here in verse 4. This doesn't mean being a doormat, just laying down for whatever a husband demands. What's in mind here is just simply a woman who's not who's not pushy, who's not demanding, who's not always looking for an opportunity to take over, who's not constantly asserting herself over her husband. That's the idea that's in place here. But it's a wonderful promise here that when a wife adopts this kind of an attitude, even when she's living with a husband who is set against the Word of God, that it can happen that by the grace of God that husband will one day say, I can't deny that this woman has lived so faithfully and so honestly and so much of a godly life before me. What she believes must be true. I want to believe in Jesus too. That's what Peter is saying. Can happen and does happen. And we have an example of that actually in this church. Um, Many of you know about Carol Addington um, who lost her husband uh, just a few months ago. And uh, I have talked to Carol and got permission from her to share this with you. Um, I also talked to Carol's son, Doug, and Doug shared with me some of the things that he witnessed in the relationship between Carol and Danny. Uh, Danny, for 50 years of his life, was not a Christian. Carol was going to church every Sunday. Carol was following Jesus. Carol was praying for her family. Danny was staying home every single Sunday for 50 years. And I asked Doug what he observed in this relationship between Carol and Danny, and he said that what Carol did is he mo- she mostly just lived her life before him. She prayed for him. She prayed for the family. And Doug said that Danny saw a peace, a comfort, and a joy in Carol's heart that Jesus had given her. He said Carol never hid her faith, was never ashamed of it, never tried to cover it up, but she didn't stick it in his face. She didn't nag him about it. She didn't pressure him about it. She lived a godly life. The hidden person of her heart was shown before her husband. And it took 50 years But about a year before he died, Danny came to faith in Jesus. And it was a great privilege to baptize him here in this church. That's what Peter's talking about here. That's what can happen. It doesn't happen in all cases, but it can happen and does happen. And that's why these directions are being given to wives to act in this way. There's something appealing. There's something attractive about it. Now, one other thing we should consider is how. How are these directions to be obeyed? 
Exactly how is this implemented? A wife being subject to her husband. What, what does that look like? And Peter gives us some examples by looking to the past. Look at verse 5. He refers to the holy women of the past who hoped in God, and that was how they adorned themselves in this gentle and quiet spirit and hidden person of the heart, this imperishable beauty. And Peter points to an example, Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So this is from the passage that we just heard from Genesis chapter 18. Sarah, a godly woman. And those who uh, adopt a lifestyle, an attitude toward their husbands that are like her, are her children. If you're not afraid, Peter says, if you're not afraid of what people are going to think or what your husband's going to do, but you just simply adopt this attitude of submission, this is the way Sarah did it. And this is an example of what it is to be subject. And just so you know, I don't require Mary to call me Lord um, or Master at home. And, and I don't think that that's necessary to fulfill this passage. Um, I'll talk about that a little more in just a second. But in, in verse 4, or excuse me, in verse 3, we have more examples here of, of how a wife can fulfill this command to be subject to her husbands. What Peter says is, don't let your adorning be external, just on the outside, the braiding of hair, wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Don't let your, don't become a woman who is known simply for the way she looks and the way she dresses, but seek to be known as a woman who is humble and godly. Seek to be known as a woman who has internal spiritual qualities that are impressive, that that should be more important than the emphasis on outward external beauty. That's what Peter is saying. Now, something that's very important to understand, again, as we consider the cultural context here, um, a woman who would braid her hair or wear gold or put on makeup would be regarded very different in that culture than in this culture. Because, again, we've got a believing woman and an unbelieving husband. In this culture, it would have been very unusual, almost unheard of, for a woman to go out without her husband being with her. It's very common. A husband had to escort his wife anywhere that she would go. So here's a situation where a woman is a Christian, the husband's not, which would suggest that the woman's probably going to be going to church, going to worship, going to be with her brothers and sisters in Christ. She's going to be leaving the house without her husband. And if she goes out of the house without her husband with a fancy dress on and lots of makeup on and braided hair in that culture, they would have said that woman is trying to be seductive. That woman is going out to have an affair. It would have been regarded as an act of rebellion against her husband for a woman to dress that way in that culture. So what Peter is doing, he's saying, in the past, this is the way this was obeyed. In the past, this is the specific way this was obeyed. So this is a good, I think, lesson in how we kind of interpret the Bible. The specific applications that the Bible gives us aren't always transferable from one culture to another. The principles are, but the applications aren't. You know, we have a command in the Bible to greet one another with a holy kiss, right? And we don't do that. 
We don't, I don't bet you nobody kissed each other this morning. That doesn't mean we're in disobedience to God's word. Most of us gave each other a hug, shook hands, whatever. We have a greeting time. The principle, greet one another, is what's important there, not necessarily the way it's practiced. And that's similar to what's going on here. So how do we, how do women uh, obey this passage? Let me just say a few things about what it doesn't mean to clear up misunderstandings. For a wife to obey this passage, to be subject to her husband, it does not mean that you can't braid your hair, that you can't wear nice clothes, and that you can't put makeup on. That's not what it means. Because doing that in this culture is not a symbol of rebellion and rejection of a husband's authority. Nobody would look at a woman who dressed nicely and has makeup on and say she's being rebellious. We wouldn't draw that conclusion. So that's, that's not what it means. But it also does not mean that a woman can't get an education. It doesn't mean that a woman can't start a business. It doesn't mean a woman can't run for president. That's not what this means. It also doesn't mean that a woman needs to be subject to every man in every place. Do you notice in verse 1? Be subject to your own husbands. It doesn't mean that a woman has to be subject to every man that she runs into. This also doesn't mean that we need to apply this in terms of traditional kind of stereotypes. You know, we have stereotypes about what it is for a woman to submit to her husband. These stereotypes that would suggest things like, well, a woman should always be in, a, in the kitchen, or the woman should just say yes, dear, to everything that her husband says. That the husband can just sit on the sofa watching football all day, calling out to his wife to get him a beer, and the husband just needs, or the wife just needs to, to respond like a waitress. Th those are some negative stereotypes we have about how this passage is fulfilled, and none of those is a proper application of this principle. The principle is wives be submissive. The application is going to be different from culture to culture. It's going to be different, perhaps, even from marriage to marriage. And so married couples, this is something you've got to talk about. You've got to work it out. How, how does this look in your marriage? The, the principle applies, and so I do think what this is saying is, wives, you need to be prepared to adopt a posture uh, an attitude of willingness to defer to your husband's initiative and leadership. And to know what that looks like, you, you've got to have conversations. You've got to listen to one another to work out what that looks like. Now, in our culture, I think one of the ways that this is very frequently worked out is that the wife takes the last name of her husband. And I think culturally speaking, that probably is a good way for the wife to show submission to her husband. Uh, a couple of other examples or suggestions. It seems in many families that the wife is kind of the one sometimes who's leading spiritually. She's the one praying. She's the one reading the Bible. Wives, I would say, call on your husbands to be a man and step up and lead in that way. Ask your husband to pray, to read the Bible, to take leadership in that area. That's a suggestion. Another suggestion would be 
when it comes to decision making, when it comes to making a final decision on some issue, the tiebreaker is the husband. There needs to be lots of discussion, lots of talking. Husbands need to listen to their wives, take their opinions seriously. But if, a, but if a husband senses a call from God to do something, the wife disagrees with that, the response of the husband shouldn't just be, well, what, whatever you want, dear, whatever you want. If the husband believes that God is calling them to do something, he is convinced that this is God's will, and the wife disagrees, the wife needs to be ready to say, you know what, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I am your wife, and I will follow you wherever you go. And you know, I gotta say, just to give kudos to my wife, I mean, she said that to me. And that's what I think every man wants to hear. You know, when I decided to go to seminary, she did not disagree. She was in agreement with our plan to go, so it's not quite the same thing. But it wasn't her idea for us to go to seminary. It was my idea. And we had to leave behind jobs in Indianapolis and step out in faith and go to another city. And she followed me there. And it wasn't easy for her in a lot of respects, but I'm grateful to my wife for her attitude of deference to me as leader in our marriage. So that's just an example of what this might look like. I think in most cases, you probably won't even get to that place with good conversation where you're listening to one another. You don't have to get to the tiebreaker place. <laughs> I think you'll come to an agreement, but occasionally, the husband might have to say, this is what we're doing. So those are directions to, to wives. And okay, we got one verse now for the husband. So let's consider what Peter says to the husbands, directions to husbands. So <clears throat> husbands, let, let me make this clear. You know what? One way that you can make it easier for a wife to submit to you will depend very much on how you lead in your marriage. So many husbands make this very difficult because they tend to be passive, they won't lead at all, they won't step out, they're afraid to make a decision, or they're the opposite. They're aggressive, they're domineering, they act like a tyrant, they're pushy, they're condescending. And this teaching to wives is no excuse for a husband to act that way, and husbands, if that's the way you're acting, you're making it really hard for your wife to submit. If nobody's making a decision, someone's got to step into that vacuum and lead. If you're not making that decision, your wife probably will, and it's hard to blame her for that. So husbands, you can help your wives in this way by being a leader. Um, you know, it occurred to me when I was talking with Stephanie Buller, actually she was here a couple years ago leading a dance class, maybe you remember that, and Mary and I took that and some others were there. And Stephanie came up with this profound <coughs> observation about marriage. She said marriage is really a lot like a dance. It's the, the, way, the way dance partners work is a great illustration of the way a good marriage works. The husband leads when a couple dances. And the wife has to be willing to follow the lead of the husband. If she doesn't follow, if they're both trying to lead, they're gonna be stepping on each other's toes. The wife needs to submit to the leadership of the husband, but the goal of the husband, this is what Stephanie said, the goal of the husband is to make the wife look good. In dancing, that's the goal of a husband as a dancer. She looks good, doesn't she? I think she does in that picture. The husband, the man there is leading and making her look good, and so we have Directions here in verse 7. 
uh, about how that should take place. Directions to husbands, okay? Verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That, that word for understanding is to, to gain knowledge, to know your wife. Husbands, do you know your wife's goals, desires, fears, strengths, weaknesses, longings? Do, do you know that? How is it that you know something? You know something by studying it. Husbands, study your wives. Pay attention to them. Talk to them. Listen to them. Put down your iPhone and listen to them. And get to know them. That's, that's what Peter is saying here. That's what it is to live in an understanding way. Peter goes on. He says to honor the woman, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, here's another potentially difficult statement here by Peter. I don't think Peter means that a woman is weaker in intelligence or weaker in godliness or weaker in talent or dignity. But there is a sense, isn't there, in which women tend to be weaker than men, and that is in terms of physical strength. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, just yesterday, Mary came to me with a little jar and said, I can't open this. Will you open it for me? And I opened it. And I'm not very strong. I have flabby arms, and, and I was able to open it. When it comes to energy levels, I mean, this is something else, I think, with, with my wife and me. I mean, Mary needs some extra sleep. I'm sorry, Mary, for talking about you so much. I, I need to seek permission for this, I suppose, by violating exactly what I'm preaching here as I... You know, there's energy levels. Sometimes women don't have the energy levels that a man has. A man's got to be understanding about that. <clears throat> I think another example of this is in, in volume of voice. Men typically have louder voices than women. So when you're in a discussion, I mean, this has happened with me. You know, we're in an argument, okay, not a discussion, an argument. And Mary says, stop yelling. I'm not yelling. I'm just raising my voice. You know, there, there's, there's a difference. I'm speaking loudly, but when I speak loudly, it sounds like yelling because my voice is louder than a woman's voice. And, you know, not in all cases, but depending on how you were brought up, sometimes a man raising his voice can be very intimidating, very alarming to a woman. And so I think that's what Peter has in mind here, the woman as uh, the weaker vessel. And it makes me wonder, too, since we're talking about as I'm understanding this passage, physical weakness. I wonder if Peter has in mind the potential for physical abuse here. You know, we've seen this stuff about Ray Rice, the Baltimore Ravens running back who punched his wife in the elevator. You know, it's just an appalling thing to witness. Um, Peter would be appalled by that also. That, that, that's the idea here is, men, be considerate to the fact that your wife is physically weaker and don't take advantage of that. Husbands, if you're, if you're threatening your wife in some way, if you're abusing her verbally, calling her names, yelling at her, if you're abusing her physically, you are in direct disobedience of the Word of God, and you need to repent. You need to repent. 
I like what Kathy Keller said. If a woman is being abused by her husband, she should forgive him from the heart and call the police. You are not loving your husband by enabling him to continue in that sin. So call the police and pray that God would change his heart. I mean, there's an alarming warning here, isn't there, to husbands who don't follow the directions that Peter is giving at the very end of verse 7. Peter's saying, live with your wives in an understanding way, all these things, so that your prayers will not be hindered. I think it's an appropriate thing to say, husbands, if you're mistreating your wives, God will not hear your prayers. That's how serious this is. You know, it's like, I think the kind of logic here is our relationship with our wives affects our prayer life. Our, our prayer life affects our ministry, particularly for those who are in some kind of full-time ministry. And that's why I often say that your public ministry is only as strong as your private ministry. Your ministry in the church is only as strong as your ministry at home. And husbands, if you're mistreating your wives, there's going to be a lack of health in your relationship with God. And that's why repentance is needed. So, this is God's design for marriage here. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. To sum up, it's just this. Husbands leading lovingly and humbly and wives submitting joyfully and intelligently. That's a summary, I think, of what this passage is saying. If this sounds still demeaning to you, then just look to the gospel. Look to the truth of the gospel, because what we have there is an example of one who was willing to submit in a very important way. In fact, our salvation, our, our status before God as justified sinners is based on an act of submission that our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to do for us. You remember when Jesus was in the garden, didn't want to go to the cross, let this cup pass from me, but what did he say? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. That's submission. Jesus submitted to the Father. He took the form of a servant. He was obedient, obedient even to death on the cross. And God exalted him so that every knee would bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it came through an act of submission. So Kelly, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, says this. The son defers to his father, taking the subordinate role. The father accepts the gift but then exalts the son to the highest place. The son takes a subordinate role, and in that movement he shows not his weakness, but his greatness. The gospel is the model. So wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, love and honor your wives, that the world may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. There is wisdom in your word for us. And I pray, O oh Lord God, that as marriages flourish in this congregation, that you would be glorified, Father. Uh, Lord, I ask that if there are any um, situations, marital situations, where there's tension, where there's abuse, verbal or physically, Father, we pray for repentance in those situations, reconciliation and health. 
Uh, thank you, Lord, for speaking to us clearly. And we sing now in response in joyful praise. In Jesus' name.